Welcome to Project Update, a weekly podcast about the projects we're working on and unsquashable bugs. I'm Joe Simpson. And I'm Dave Ramsey. How's it going, Dave? Doing pretty good now. Now? <laughs> now. Uh, kind of a... but the, Some of the code was a little rough this week. Mm. Um, I did... Uh, this week was one of my favorite days of the year on Friday. It was uh, TEDx Columbus. I just love going in there and getting my brain packed with weird ideas and neat thoughts and things. And once the videos come out, I'm going to be sharing some links of particularly awesome ones. Cool. Um, There's uh, this idea that I've been playing with since Friday of the, the TED Talk as a compression format. For ideas, you take somebody with decades of experience and they boil a chunk of it down to this like perfect eight to 12 minutes. And then they shove that into your brain and it just starts unfurling in there. And it doesn't happen immediately. It takes days, weeks, sometimes months for this thing to build itself into this larger structure in your brain. But it's kind of cool. Um. One of the ones that's been doing this a little bit is uh, had a presenter from Ohio State who coordinates a mobile tech incubator slash makerspace. (laughs) It's just a, a little thing that they can load on a truck and move it to somewhere else on campus. They keep moving it to high traffic areas. And it's got... All the, you know, the 3D printers and things like that all in there. And then the other thing they do is if you follow their five to six week process, you know, going through the design meetings and things like that and doing their thing, they guarantee funding to all projects. Nice. Like if you're going to commit the time, they'll commit money. And that's just crazy pants. Yeah. But they've had some really interesting successes coming out of that. So once the video hits, I'm sure I'll be talking about that more. Guessing a month, month and a half maybe, and be sharing that around. So uh, the big lesson of this week was uh, related to unit testing. Important unit testing lesson. At minimum, run them once per commit. Mm. <laughs> I see where this is going. <laughs> so I lost days failing to do that. So I went through and applied error checking to all my unit tests. You know, the error checking stuff that I kind of figured out at the tail end of last week. Got it kind of propagated. So everything was checking for parse errors. But I still had... A couple of tests that were supposed to fail that weren't. And it was that thing that I was talking about where if you had an open paren and no close paren, it would flag it as an error. Mm -hmm. But if you had a close paren and no open paren, that was totally legal. Yeah, how else are you going to write your smiley faces? (laughs) Exactly. So this thing is just beating me up. Um, And I kind of shifted from playing with the unit tests to having my set of demo code. So the demo code is where I can say, here's the string, parse it out, and then it spits out a ton of data about the varying stages of the parse process. So this is, for my visualization, it's not good for unit testing purposes, but sometimes I need to see more detail than a single unit test can provide. So I'm looking at this and seeing that when it's parsing, it's getting to that first close paren and literally dumping out. (laughs) It ignores everything that happens after the first close paren. It found it, it saw it, it tokenized it, but when it came to actually figuring out what the moving parts were, it went, I don't know, and just stopped. Nice. And so that took some digging to kind of figure out, 
and the trick in um, Antler is including in at least one of your parsing rules an EOF. So rolling back a little bit further, when you feed Antler a string, the first thing it does is hand it to a bunch of tokenizing rules that slice the string up into kind of individual elements. It's like if, I, if I'm just handing it a field name and it's field space five, the, token, the tokenizer says there's a word followed by white space followed by a number. It's when it gets to the parser rules that it puts those things back together and goes, this is some kind of reference. This isn't one of the logical words. It doesn't have the form of a function call. This is some kind of reference to something. Don't know what it is yet, but it puts all that back together in the parser. And so the tokenizer is seeing this close paren. But when you hand Antler a string, there's always an extra token that you don't give it that it sees anyway. And that's an EOF token. End of file or end of feed. It's like, this is the thing that says we're all done. If you don't make one of your rules look for the EOF, then it can dump out early. And that's okay. It goes as far as it can and just stops. But if you make the top level rule require the EOF, if it tries to dump out early, it doesn't match that pattern either. And so that generates an error. Hmm. So it took, oh gosh, 40, 50 Google searches. Like this really stressed my Google foo. And in the end, the answer was very, very simple. It was like space EOF compile. Like that was all I had to do. <clears throat> and it totally worked. And it was finding open paren with no close paren and close paren with no open paren. Awesome sauce. That's why I'm happy. Like, this is all great. And I commit that and move on to the next thing. Not running all the unit tests. <laughs> so I get into the next thing, which is where I'm trying to take my substitute function handling code that has those two paths, the bracket notation and the non-bracket notation. And it's really kind of ugly there. And I want to simplify it in the same way that I did with let and while and evaluate. So I put that code in there. <clears throat> And start working with it. And then I run the unit tests. And not only do those unit tests fail. The ones dealing specifically with substitute. I'm breaking simple things like plus and minus. Like mm -hmm. I have completely fragged these rules. And I don't understand why. And the point is it has nothing to do with the change I just made. So there's mm -hmm. hours lost there, just trying to poke at this thing and going, why is this happening and what's going on? And it's causing these weird syntax errors and the parser is puking every single time. And it just can't get it. And so I back that code out. So I'm back to where I thought it worked. And I run the demo code and it works. And I run the unit tests and half the stuff is red. I'm like, what? This worked, didn't it? Well, it had worked in the one way. So in my brain, I categorized it as functional, never ran the unit tests, and never questioned whether that worked or not. This was a fixing one thing and breaking 30 others. At some level, it's like a regression. But So here's the trick. In that top-level rule, which is my, my calculation parser rule, I added the EOF to the end. But you may recall that a couple of weeks ago, one of my solutions to handling complex calculations was that some of the inner elements, like a function parameter, could itself be an entire calculation. Mm. And so I just referenced the calculation rule. Oh, no. Well, now when you get to the end of the first function parameter, it's expecting to see the EOF. Because I said, this is a calculation. Calculations end with an EOF. And it goes EOF and then goes, that next comma is broken. I was expecting nothing. <sighs> so that solution was relatively simple. It was just, 
I needed two rules there. There's the one overarching rule that's like, it is a calculation followed by an EOF. And then the sub rule that's like, here's what a calculation looks like. And so changing all the references to the larger rule to the one immediately below it, the immediate sub rule that was just the calculation components without the EOF. And yay, suddenly everything starts working again. But I've already rolled back all my substitute changes. So that's actually next thing on my agenda is digging in there and grabbing those changes again and trying to apply them because now the thing seems to be functional. Understand that making these large, like high-level structural changes to the parser really pissed off a lot of my unit tests. It's like, oh, go a build. Oh, you got 116 syntax errors. Hmm. Okay. And when you're messing with things at that level, it's bumping into that Visual Studio bug left and right. Yeah. Where it loses track of what's good and what's bad and starts throwing syntax errors for things you've already fixed. So, yeah. So, lesson. Run the unit tests before the commit. Every time. I, I've already got making small commits. I'll make one change. It's functional. I make the commit. Now I need to build the unit test cycle in there. And I've seen systems that require that the unit tests run and pass before you can do a commit. Mm -hmm. Like as part of the commit process, it runs the unit tests for you. And I'm tempted to go there aside from the fact that there are periodically times when I want to do a commit when there's still like one outstanding unit test. Because I've moved out of phase one and phase two will be resolving that. But I want to commit the phase one stuff and get it off my machine so it's out into the cloud before I try tackling the second one. Mm -hmm. So, gee, lots and lots and lots of fun. Um, there is, it's one of those downsides of using, using unit tests. You mess something up and it pops up as like 150 errors. You're like, oh. Okay, and unfortunately, when that many things light up, it's not particularly helpful at telling you where the problem is. When one unit test breaks, you're like, ah, this here isn't working. When every unit test breaks, she's like, I, I don't know what's going wrong. So, yeah, that was fun. Yeah. Um, I think that mostly covers my update for the week. Like I can, I can summarize these issues fairly succinctly, but it took a long time. Like I dug this hole for myself. The good news is this is the kind of experience that's going to make me remember to, um, to do this testing every time. Mm-hmm. There was one time in, gosh, my sophomore year of high school, I wrote some little program. I was taking a Fortran class, wrote some little program, and it was not doing the right thing. And the teacher looks at it and goes, I know what you did wrong. Good luck finding it. <laughs> and I, he let me beat on it for basically the rest of the class. And he still didn't tell me. I solved it literally in like the last five minutes of class. And the thing was, I hadn't properly initialized one of my variables. And so it was just getting some weird random value off the, out of memory. This wasn't, this wasn't something that like the first time you define the variable, it automatically sets it to zero. This kind of problem is why programming languages do that today. Mm -hmm. But I've never... Never really had that problem again. It's like I make a variable, I give it an initial value. I make a variable, I give it an initial value because I'm never doing it again. So, no more committing without running the unit tests. Yeah, I've seen that type of thinking go awry though before. That uh, we learned a lesson the hard way, therefore we, we put this policy in place so we never run into that problem again. I've seen that happen at, at other jobs and other developers I've worked with where they're doing something in 2019 
<laughs> they're, they're coding around something in 2019 that was fixed in FileMaker 12. Like that, you don't have to worry about that anymore. Like, right. Well, and to a certain degree, like with the example of, you know, initializing variables, Swift, for example, does a ton of stuff. It's like, no, you can't make a class that has properties, initialize the class, and not initialize one of the properties. Mm -hmm. Your your instantiator, your initializer, has to set everything, or it has to be set in the class definition itself. And so that's a way to solve that problem. They forced it into the language itself. Um. Yeah, I just mean like the the bigger issue of we learned something the hard way, therefore we're always going to do this. Right. Uh, the the problems with those rules is that they become easy to just keep doing that one thing because it worked and it was the answer to that one problem. But you may be continuously applying a workaround or a solution to something that's no longer an issue, or mm -hmm. you may have missed the opportunity to learn a totally new way of doing that. This is right. one of the reasons why. Uh, you know, in the FileMaker world, template files are kind of a big deal. People people make templates that they use for their business so they don't have to rewrite, basically re, rebuild the, everything from the scratch for every system. I really don't. There's a couple of things I copy in, but every project mm -hmm. I do is a brand new file. There's a couple of custom functions that I use and some error checking scripts that I use. Everything else I, I build from the ground up every time. And it's just... I. Because I do that, I've gotten the experience of learning how to do stuff very quickly and how to implement features. And you can look back at some of my systems and see the evolution of this of a similar feature five different ways in different systems. And then some of my colleagues, you can look back at their systems and see the exact same implementation of all of them. And when they need to add something new, or they find a bug, they've got it in all of them, stuff like that. Yeah. So, I've, you know, there are pros and cons to both of those approaches, but I really prefer the, I'd rather reinvent the wheel and do everything myself than trust Joe from 2013 <laughs> wrote a function right the first time. Yeah. I, I think in these cases, these two cases that I presented, mm -hmm. it's not about the individual lines of code it's more procedural yeah it's, um, it's building that habit in like i'm not saying you shouldn't run yeah. the test every time right well and, and and i fully agree that one of the things that i saw from my years as a consultant was companies that made a policy 20 years ago and they're still following the policy even though the digital system is actually handling all of that for them. Mm. But uh, you can, I mean, re-examining those things on a regular basis, I think is also part of setting those policies. Yeah. You know, if you want to, you know, if you want to have your, um, your boilerplate code or something like that, that's cool. As long as your process is once a year, we sit down and, hack on this thing for a couple of hours mm -hmm. to apply yeah. all expanded knowledge or whatever. Um, yeah. I've got my own kind of miniature version of that where every week <laughs> I do a weekly review on Saturday morning just to go over how the week went and planning for the week ahead. And there's just a, a checklist that I use for that process. And every quarter there's a task in my quarterly review to update the weekly review checklist to make sure I'm only doing things that are still relevant. <laughs> yep. Awesome. So, uh, good progress made painful path to progress. Mm -hmm. uh, how's your week been, Joe? Very similar. <laughs> well, good? No. Yeah. Wait. Mostly good, but some frustrating bugs. So we, I think where we left off last week, I was thinking about making a kind of a, an expanded list view. And I did that the next day and just didn't come up with anything that I really liked. So I decided to put that on the back burner, maybe revisit that in an update. Like there's definitely potential there, but everything I tried was like, yeah, this is just too clunky. There's like, there's either 
way too much data on screen or not enough data on screen. I couldn't kind of find that sweet spot. So I think that's the kind of thing, the expanded list view feature, if I ever work in images to the app, that kind of feature would be, it would make more sense in the context of having images and longer notes on events than it does with when you just have a title and some dates. Like it looked kind of silly. Yeah, a list of detail views is a tough, tough thing to make look mm -hmm. smooth. Yeah, and I was also thinking about it as I was playing with it. Like this would actually be good to leave as a detail view, but maybe put a timeline scrubber at the bottom. So you just, you can actually see this tool in uh, in the Apple or in the iPhone Photos app. There's one of the views where you can be looking at a full screen photo, but there's a little tiny scrubber of photos at the bottom and you're kind of paging through them. So that okay. may be something kind of cool to do with the timeline, but that's not something I want to figure out right now. Yeah, version two. Yeah, that's, that's whiz bangy update features. <laughs> I think it's the technical term. So what have I done instead? I kind of finished up the, the queries for the reports and I decided to put the perspective report or the perspective UI on hold as well. I think that'll be a standalone update, like an entire update to maybe fix some bugs and ship that feature as a thing. Um, and then I spent entirely too much time trying to fix bugs that I couldn't fix. And this is part of my, my problem as someone who can kind of uh, hyper-focus on something to my own detriment where I can, I can waste, I never waste more than three hours because I only work in three hour blocks. And usually within five minutes of coming out of the work block, I'm like, I just wasted three hours, but I never see it while <laughs> I'm doing it. <laughs> hey, if, if that three hours had ended with success, it wouldn't have felt like a waste. Exactly. It literally is the last five minutes that make it a waste. Yeah. So some of these are things that I worked around and some of these are things that I need to fix. Uh, one of the first, which is the, I added some filtering to the various list views. So on the, the report list views, there's a little filter button at the bottom and there's a couple just Boolean toggles. You, you tap a button and a modal pops up and there's a couple things to filter on. Like, do you want to hide all the archive records? That's checked by default. Do you want to hide the ending date records? That's not checked by default on most reports. And uh, the way I built this was basically with a, a view model object that you can, when you navigate to the list view, you tell the list view what type of list it is just from an enumeration. And then it instantiates one of these view model objects using that enum to return all the, the types of data that it needs. So the, you know, it builds the predicate based on that. It builds the sort order built based on that and the key path. So all the core data stuff. And then it also kind of decorates the UI, shows what controls are relevant to that report and which ones are not, are hidden, things like that. It's all pretty neat. And then because it's an observable object, I can have published properties in that class that tie directly to UI controls. So it makes it pretty cool. So when you, like when you open the modal, the filter modal, and you toggle the hide archive thing, that's happening in real time. That's actually changing the fetch request that that list view is based on right as you tap it. It's not, you know, saving the data and committing it and calling a script and all that stuff. It's just all happening right there. And it's really neat. And I built it in such a way that I could, I basically have one single list view now instead of multiples. And when, like the, the four reports that I have are different cases in that list view enumeration. And so is a regular timeline. So when you're navigating to just a regular timeline to you know edit data or delete things or just look at stuff, that's using the same layout and it just has a case called timeline. And you, that has a separate initializer so you can pass in the related timeline and use that in the, in the predicate. And all of that works just fine, except the filter on the timeline version of the list just doesn't work. I can open the modal, I can toggle the switch, and I get this weird console error that only shows up once. 
and I, like it's very arcane. I forget what it is. I've got it pasted somewhere, but it's something to do with the instance of the timeline list or the event list view model not being created, even though it is created. I can add print lines into every step of this before it's initialized, after it's initialized, print out its properties. I can print out the variable that's bound to the toggle. I can see it changing its value and it's still failing and I have no idea what's happening. So no more filtering <laughs> on timelines. Like, <laughs> I just kind of commented around that for now. Like I, I, I banged my head on the desk for like 45 minutes, like trying everything I can think of. I even got rid of the modal, got rid of the view model, just put the filter on the layout that works just fine. Okay, so I'm gonna change the, or I put the toggle directly on the layout with the list view. That works fine. Now change it to the bound value that it's supposed to be receiving from the list view model. Okay, now it's working fine. Okay, let's put it back in the modal and it's broken. <laughs> I, I just don't understand what's happening. But it's only broken for that one case out of the, the several cases. And I just can't figure it out. So that was one of them. Another one is I didn't spend much time trying to solve this because I immediately recognized that this was not something that I can fix. <laughs> but um, on the iPad, the app by default supports split screen and slide over. Uh, so you can actually you know, have a, maybe a Safari window open and a window of retrospective timelines side by side. And it works just fine, except when you resize your split view window to make the app smaller the first time. So if you just open it up directly, throw it in split view, everything is fine. As soon as you try to make it smaller or make it bigger and then make it smaller, something happens and the entire view hierarchy is duplicated in place. And then if you make another size adjustment, the entire view hierarchy is duplicated in place. So you can end up with 15 stacks of user interface. Fortunately, you're only interacting with one of them. It's not like the touches are passing through to all of them. But I've never seen anything like this before. It, it, I think it has something to do with the diffing engine that SwiftUI is using to destroy and recreate views. It, it's not destroying the ones that it needs to. But I have no idea how to fix it. And I immediately filed a TSI with Apple, hoping, hoping maybe they can be helpful this time. But... For the time being, I just removed, or I checked the box that the app requires full screen because I, I, I just can't ship that at all. Basically, you could use the app for half an hour and just keep resizing the window or keep showing it in slide over and you could run out of RAM because yeah. it's taking up so much space just from the user interface controls. So This is me being no brighter than a rubber ducky because I don't, I haven't played with the stuff that you're playing with. <clears throat> Is there any chance that it's calling some view initialization code where you're putting things on the view hierarchy where it's expecting to be cleared out, but actually the, the old view is remaining? So instead of just redrawing the view, it's actually reinitializing the view and that's just adding more stacks? I think so, yeah. Okay. From what I understand about SwiftUI, the way that SwiftUI views work is you, you don't ever edit a view. That's not even a concept that is valid to think about. If you change the way that a piece of text looks, you're throwing that view away and replacing it with another one. And that and SwiftUI has you know animation stuff to animate between those two transitions or those two points in the line, but you don't make changes to a view. So I'm never, right. I'm never editing a view at okay. all. Every time something's happening, that component is being destroyed. And it's pretty well optimized where you can see, you know, I've got a list view and I want to toggle into edit mode and show another button. It doesn't destroy the entire list view and start me back at the top of the table. Like it's it's smart enough to just to re-evaluate the stuff that's changing. But I think something about that engine that's checking for those those changes is failing. And it's just this one case. I don't know if it's a if it's a bug with the window thing. I couldn't reproduce this outside of my app. So I did try that. So it's something with the way that my app is running 
maybe with the way that my app is tied to core data or tied to one of the view models where maybe something is tightly coupled and not being destroyed in some way. Mm. But it's the entire, that's the thing. It's if I launch the app and I can reproduce this bug exactly from the timeline list, but if I navigate three or four screens in, I can also reproduce it there. Okay. But and then my my timeline list is also duplicated. So it's literally the entire view hierarchy for the app running. And by view hierarchy, I mean the UI kit view hierarchy, not the Swift UI stuff. Right. So yeah, it's I don't even want to like I know this is I can hear the gears in your head <laughs> trying to solve this. Don't. I don't even want to spend time on this. Uh, I'll wait for Apple to get back to me. Um <laughs> That's fine. Me, I, like, I, I, I literally couldn't go beyond this without digging in and understanding the entire structure of your code. And that's unlikely to happen. So, yeah. I mean, as soon as I saw this, I spent, I kind of felt myself sliding into a black hole. Like, this is, I'm never <laughs> going to come out of this problem if I start working on this. So, that one, I'm kind of passing the buck for now, disabling the multi window support, which I don't like. Well, it doesn't have multi-window support, but it does support slide over and and uh, split view, but I had to disable that for now. Right. So maybe I can add that back later. Another one that just makes me so mad. <laughs> <laughs> I just, I don't understand what's happening. On my timeline list, so like the root view of the app, you've got your section of reports at the top, a section of timelines, and then a section of archived timelines. And, you know, it's just a regular list view with some sections. There's a static section and two dynamic sections. And I've got that showing and hiding stuff working, like the collapsible sections working. There's a weird issue where if, if I go to the archive, pick a timeline, unarchive it so that it pops up into the other section of the list, and then try to edit that timeline, the edit no longer reflects on that row. The entire list view row is then kind of broken and stays in that previous state that it was from when it was unarchived. But if I go the other way from a non-archived timeline, I archive it and then move to the archive and then edit it, it works just as expected. And it, there's, not, there's nothing for me to do. Like I, I've tried everything I can think of there. The only thing, like if this was a Mac app, I would like quit the app and relaunch it. <laughs> the only thing I could think of, there's no <laughs> way for me to just refresh the entire view. I even tried that with like, I'm going to put a state variable that you know, my entire view is wrapped up. It's like, Hey, is, is this set to true? Then show the entire view. And then I tried to set it to false briefly and set it back to true. And Swift UI is like, nah, I'm not, I'm not doing that. And just ignored that entirely. <laughs> so I kind of worked around this one. The, I first noticed this happening because I had a, a context menu where you could unarchive something or archive something. And, I, and the text for that menu button would change if you're in the active section, it would say archive this timeline. And if you were in the archive, it would say unarchive this timeline. And I noticed when I would unarchive something, the state wouldn't update. Like, okay, that's weird. And I, and I couldn't get it to redraw. I thought it was something, you know, maybe a bug with the context menu. And then I started noticing that I couldn't edit. Well, I can't edit the thing. So when I make a, you know, change the color or the icon or, or the spelling of the, the timeline name, all of those changes are saved in the, in the schema. But the list view, the list row is just no longer tied to what it's supposed to be tied to for some reason and it's just not updating and if you launch the app it'll look right again and even if i navigate over to somewhere where i can use the timeline picker it looks right there but the the way i worked around it was getting rid of that context menu and there was already a way to there's a toggle at the bottom of the timeline edit form where you can toggle the archive status and i'm hoping People will just use that and not notice that, like I'm hoping it's enough of an edge case that you just 
unarchived something. You were just in the window where you could change the spelling and the color and the icon. Why do you need to reopen and do it again? But if they do, I'll probably get a mean email. So that one's nothing I can figure out with that either. I spent, too, I spent way too much time on this one. Yeah. Is there is there ever times in dealing with this stuff where you need to use the should update key value, did update key value stuff? No, this stuff is all abstracted away from that. Yeah. So I, don't, okay. I don't have like a life cycle of events that I can call okay. on stuff. I wish I did because that would make way more sense. But there, and I, I can't also just like reach up to a view and destroy it. I can't just de init something. So hmm. I, I, I just don't know. Yeah. Okay. The, the only other workaround would be to break out of this sectioned list and put the archive somewhere else. Because when it was just a standalone list with, with no sections, when, I was, when I'm not sorting, sorting the list by that Boolean into two sections, this list wasn't, or this issue wasn't happening. I could unarchive something, it would show up back on this list and it'd be fine. <laughs> Frustratingly, while I'm reproducing this issue, on my phone, I can unarchive something, maybe change the color to it, look at my iPad, who's not doing anything, and the change will be reflected on the iPad. <laughs> <laughs> because the iCloud data sync is working better mm -hmm. than on the machine. Yep. Oh, goody. Yeah. <laughs> I'm I'm so sorry, Joe. <laughs> yeah. So this last one is something not, not it's not necessarily a bug, but it's something I need to to figure out how to do. So I wrote a a couple of weeks ago. I wrote a custom by wrote I mean copied together from various Stack Overflow posts a a custom text view implementation. So you I could use for the notes. So you'd have long form notes because SwiftUI doesn't have a control like that, and then. I decided to make a a text field version of that because the Swift UI implementation of text field is really limited and doesn't have things like the little X button to clear out the value or it, it wasn't even doing like the double space to add a period uh, text to speech where the speech to text thing was always crashing. It would capture one letter and then crash. It's like this. Wait, this, really? Yeah, this text field is broken. So I made my own using pretty much the same type of approach that I did with the text view. It, you know, some of the methods are different. And this issue applies to both of those implementations where I can, like all my editing stuff works right. I've got, you know, a custom done button. I've got the little clear thing to remove all the text, all those features that I wanted. But what I don't have is the ability to position the cursor somewhere and start typing other than at the end of the line. And this is stuff that's kind of annoying about iOS development. You have to do that yourself. And I just don't know how to do that. Um, you have to, every keystroke, check the entire string and your position in it and update your position with the keystroke and the new data. Like it's one of those things that I guess I'm spoiled as a FileMaker guy. Like this, I never had to think about these types of things before. But if you want the cursor to move while you type in a text field in iOS, you have to do that yourself. And if you want the user to be able to reposition the cursor and go add a word before something or, yeah, it's kind of messed up. So what's ha what happens now is you can position the cursor anywhere you want, add a single character, and then the cursor jumps to the end of the field. So there are two things I need to do. I need to properly apply the changes in place and then figure out where the cursor should go after those changes. Figure out where the cursor was before the change and then where it goes after the change. And I just haven't got that working yet. That's crazy pants. Mm -hmm. Yeah. This is the kind of stuff that like, hopefully the you know version two of Swift UI will make these workarounds irrelevant. But th these types of APIs are why SwiftUI is so compelling. It's just the version of these controls 
or the single text field control. This with UI is just so limited that I kind of needed to reach out of it. But then I ran into these things I don't know how to do yet. So that one I actually do have to fix. The other three bugs that we talked about, I'm kind of shrugging, like I don't really know. So after days of bug fixing, yesterday I needed something to feel good about, like something to make progress on and you know not feel painful. So I worked on the data export for the app, which is something not that I necessarily know how to do in this environment, but it's data. Like I'm I'm familiar with data. I can deal with mm -hmm. that. So it was actually pretty straightforward to I mean, you know, just sat down and kind of wrote out what what I have, like where is the data and where does it need to go? And basically I flattened the three tables, the timeline, the event and the dates into a single event uh, CSV and then you know, wrote a fetch request to you know, return all those into a single array of objects and just some kind of text parsing code to throw it into a CSV, put quotes around the objects so they, they look like literal strings. And then there's a little bit of custom stuff of like turning the bulls uh, from true false into mm -hmm. ones for true and just blank for nothing. By default, they will actually give you the Boolean and numbers will open that, but uh, Excel and Google Sheets sometimes has weird results with that stuff. So generating the CSV wasn't too hard and then actually working with the share sheet to provide it to the activity controller or whatever it's called. That was actually the, the most troublesome part of that was that fact that my, my settings window was already in a modal and when I tried to present another one, nothing happened. And I looked at the console, it's like, you're trying to present on a view controller that's already presenting. I'm like, huh, I can't do that? <laughs> so, <laughs> apparently not. Hey, um, because I've bumped into huge amounts of problems with this in FM Perception in various versions, have you tried putting things into some of your values to break the CSV? Mm-hmm, yeah. Okay. Yeah, because I'm doing the the commas are like how do I describe this? The commas are outside of quotes. The field values are inside quotes. Mm -hmm. And most CSVs are smart enough to figure that out. Now some software may still open it and it's kind of weird. So there are a couple of events where I've got a double quote in the name of the event. And there's a couple where I've got commas in them. And those work fine when I export them and open them in numbers. But if I open them with Quick Look, they look all wonky. Right. So it's really up to the receiving application to be able to parse that correctly. But yeah, there are m multiple instances of commas and quotes okay. inside the data. But everything awesome. is showing up correctly the way it's being parsed out. So it's just a matter of what program is picking that up. And if I, you know, if I really need to, I could write an alternate version of this that uses pipes instead of CS pipes instead of commas or tabs or even just a plain text version if people run into problems. But this is mainly a I'm not going to use your app anymore. Give me my data, and I'm not right. going to do too much work for those people. <laughs> Here you go. So yeah, that was what I did yesterday and got that working. It was kind of fun, and it was actually interesting because I. Just started working like from the most basic of like, how do I make a file? Where do I put the file? How do I put something in the file? How do I open the file? Like all the series of steps. So there's every time I would use the feature from my phone, I would just share the result into an Apple Notes document. And I just kept appending to the same document. So I ended up with 20 different CSVs that are slowly kind of growing into its final form at the end of the day. So it's kind of cool to be able to just like launch quick look and flip through these 20 CSVs to see the shape of this thing kind of come together. Okay, that's neat. Yeah, that was fun. I would share that, but it's full of my personal data, so I'm not sure. going to. <laughs> um, so today was about 
you know, I've got really two more features to do, one of which I'm on the fence about and the other one I'm working on right now, shareable events. So when you are on events or in a list view, you're going to be able to, you're going to want to be able to share these as maybe just a bit of text that you can send to notes or something else, or as an image, like, you know, it's the, it's five years since this thing happened. I want to share that with somebody. And that's always been one of the core features of the app is generating some nice images. And it's, there's not really any way to do that from Swift UI, but because I can reach up from Swift UI and get the view controller I'm attached to, I can then get the, use some functions on the view there to render a view into an image. And I found a Stack Overflow post this morning where somebody had come up with this kind of ingenious solution of creating a modifier that would take whatever view you gave it to, put it into a geometry reader, and then set a bindable property with the CG rect of that geometry reader. So you can say, this is gonna read this content and here are its bounds. And then I can pass that to the image function. So basically I'm just drawing a rectangle on screen and making an image of everything in that rectangle. So it's kind of a weird way of thinking about it. But once I kind of played with it and tried different things with it, I'm like, yeah, this is totally working. So I need to basically create a static sized thing, load it with content, and then render it as an image. And then that gives me kind of a neat UI that I can build where I can have the image kind of towards the top of the screen as a rectangle, and then a couple of controls below it that you can toggle things on and off. So, you know, hide the labels, hide the end date, or hide the duration strings, or change the color from black and white to maybe fill it with a timeline color or things like that. So I can kind of give you this little interactive card that you can change attributes about before you share it. That sounds cool. Yeah. Uh, not all the customizable stuff will be there right now. Right now I'm just working on getting a good version of it and then adding some of the, the features later. But uh, working on the image, sort of that this morning, probably finish that up tomorrow, hopefully. I want to make a text version of that as well. So from the same screen, you can just share the entire image or share the entire event as text and just throw it in plain text. Um, I may do a PDF version later. I, I bookmarked a tutorial on using PDF kit. Ooh, and can then you, can you send me that link? Yeah. When you have a chance. Sure. <laughs> it's, I, it's one of those features people have asked for, for, FM perception is like some of the reports or some of the views because right now really you can copy and paste text into something and nicely the rich text comes over that way mm -hmm. or you can export CSVs or in one or two cases you can export the HTML of a larger thing but being able to generate a PDF report out of some of that would be really slick and it's sure. been requested a couple times. Yeah, I'll send you a link probably as I'm editing this. <laughs> when I get to this part. Cool. So that leaves one feature left to do, and that is the widget or whatever whatever you call those things now. They've had so many different names on the slide. But when you're on a phone and you swipe over to the left, there's that area of things. I think they're called today widgets, which would make a lot of sense for what I'm going to put there because what I'm going to put there is the result of the on this day report. Um. So it's the perfect thing to have there. I just need to figure out how to do that. And I was gonna start it this morning and I got as far as one of the Apple documentation sheets on it and was like, okay, you're gonna need to abstract your model code into a framework. And I'm just like, close tab. I'll deal with this later. <laughs> I'm working on the image today. <laughs> yeah i need to figure that out i don't think you know i was thinking about it i don't know how much of a framework i really need to make like it's do i need to make my core data model into that 
or do I just need something that can reach the core data model? Because all it really needs to do is run a single fetch request and return results in a list and maybe show two of them if there's multiples. If there's more than two, show an ellipsis at the bottom and tap the entire widget to open the app. Like it's not going to be sophisticated. Um, but I don't know enough about taking the model code and abstracting that into a framework to know if that's like, is this a huge undertaking or is this just not that big of a deal? Right. No idea. I don't know. Have you ever done that? No. I haven't. I use frameworks. I haven't really made any. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I mean, that article I was looking at went on to explain how to do it. I just mm -hmm. stopped before I got into it. <laughs> so this, this is not something I can do in an hour. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely not. I think maybe it is, but doesn't it, seem like it. it. It may be, but it's likely to be a thing where the first hour is just reading the article. Yeah. I mean, if anything, it's probably a good exercise because putting my my core data stuff, the, the classes themselves, the data model itself, putting those into the framework and then starting to write unit tests for the individual functions that I wrote on those subclasses would be a good idea. And then the core data manager thing that I'm using for my fetch result controller, being able to write tests for that should work as well. And from what I understand about testing with SwiftUI is like kind of don't. The result of SwiftUI is the passable thing. So you basically re-implement the entire view and say, does it look like the one over there? Like does, it doesn't really make sense to write tests for those in the same way. It's hmm. more about writing tests to make sure what you're feeding the UI with is giving you the right result and then letting the Swift UI engine take care of rendering it. Right. That would be more like UI tests. Mm -hmm. So that leaves me with one. So I've got my, you know, my shareable thing to, to finish up. Definitely. I'm on the fence about the widget now or the widget later. I guess it depends on how big of a deal it is. It would be nice to have now. Cause I think it's a good feature to go with this type of data. Mm -hmm. um, and then it really just leaves me with sample data. I really, I keep kicking this down the curb, but I need to make up some sample data for when, for a, a couple of purposes. When the user first launches the app, I want them to see something besides empty views. So at least one timeline with a handful of events showing them how different features work. But I also need this for screenshots and things I put on my website and videos and stuff like that. I want everything to use consistent sample data. And I'm on the fence about how opinionated this data should be or how how much representative it should be of something that I like. Like I thought about maybe some milestones in Apple history. Mm -hmm. You know, the iPhone release date, the Mac release date, um, using date ranges for like when different CEOs were there, stuff like that. But I'm not sure how many people would actually see that data and like, oh, that's cool. And how many would be like, just rather annoyed by that. So it's, you know, something that I think is cool or something a bit more dry. Like this is a single date event with a date, stuff like that. What do you, I don't know, what are your thoughts? So my biggest concern with using Apple related data is that in the app review process, Apple could decide that that's their data and they don't want you using it to market their thing. Mm -hmm, definitely. I don't like the idea of doing dry data. If you do that, there's nothing pulling you in. Mm -hmm. My temptation would be to invent a family. Okay. You know, um, birth of marriage, birth of first child, uh, birth of second child, starting new job, ending job, mm -hmm. that kind yeah. of thing. And just kind of invent a, a compressed hypothetical human being. And you can get some, if you pick the right ones, you can get some little emotional responses on there and things like that as well. Mm -hmm. But giving somebody a really good example of how they could use this for their life. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's probably um, a way better idea than what I was thinking. <laughs> this is why I asked you. Well, um, I, you preceded my brain with ideas at the beginning of this discussion, like before we started recording. No, we never did that. Little, there's just a little little loop that's been running in the back of my brain, kind of teasing that around as we've been talking. So, um, yeah, something like that. You could get some good event variation and just think about, I mean, to a certain degree, think about some of the things that you track, mm-hmm. but recreate those for a hypothetical person. Yeah. So, like, when I felled my first enemy in battle... <laughs> okay now see that's now really funny is take like events from the life of leif erickson <laughs> or something like that you know viking explorer you know uh or uh mm-hmm. if it isn't too politically charged christopher columbus you know departed such and such arrived here on this date yeah um <laughs> maybe some kind of uh klingon <laughs> warrior explorer <laughs> yeah you know do the the there's there's going to be somewhere online really good timelines of famous people mm-hmm. who are fictitious you know so now your hypothetical person is Worf from yeah. star trek and that's actually kind of funny because this this app idea several years ago came out of the fact that I was using lots of timelines when learning history. And there was a bunch of online timelines that I liked. I'm like, I really want one of these for me. And, you know, just kind of made my own, sort of making my own like FileMaker version of this. And it's kind of grown into the app that I'm making now. But it's, it definitely came out of using websites that had historical timelines built into them. <laughs> Romulan invasion of Kittimer. Mm-hmm. Uh. One of the one of the more advanced features of the app is I want to be able to have some, I don't know what this looks like from a UI standpoint. We can talk about it more in the future, but I want some kind of way to compare the time between events in some meaningful way. So like pick select a couple of events and say this event is as far away from this event as cocoon is from today. Uh, things like that. Uh-huh. Or like, you know, where your, your childhood's first or your second child's first steps are as far away as the present, you know, this presidency, things like that. So be able to kind of cross reference the dates and the spans of those dates with some, maybe some kind of external database of other things like that. And there are databases of that type of stuff. It's just a matter of like, how do I actually present that in the UI? Yeah, there was a, um, there was an XKCD comic where he was looking at events versus population growth Mm -hmm. and selecting the point, the date at which half the population would have been born after this event. Mm. The, you know, the, at this point, half the people in the world were born after the challenger explosion. At Mm. this point, half the population was born after nine 11. At this point, half the population was born after the movie toy story was released. (laughs) You know? And so it's like, you know, when you find groups of these people that, that, really are going to have no idea what you're talking about when you talk about this particular event. Mm-hmm. Um, that sounds really, really interesting and not easy. Yeah. <laughs> that sounds really hard, Joe. <laughs> I mean, hard to do at all, much less do really well and elegantly. Um, I'm not trying to talk you out of it. That no, it, you know, I, the, the hard I, I would... things are the best challenges, but... Yeah, I mean, I would need a a date range or duration to compare. So that I've got 800 days, and then I need some kind of database of like, what are events that have 800 day spans of interest mm-hmm. um, to kind of reference that with. So yeah, it's, it's stuff I would like to do, not necessarily stuff that I am going to do. 
So don't consider this a roadmap feature at all. <laughs> anyway, that's kind of it for my update. I think we're we're running kind of long. It seems like I took the entire uh, podcast today. Well, my update was a little short, so. Yeah. Left you okay. plenty of time. Yeah. So that's that's kind of the plan for this week is fix these, finish these shareable events, maybe do the widgets. And other than that, I'm kind of done. Like I need, I want to fix whatever bugs I can, but I'm really planning on shipping something as soon as possible. With, as far as shipping, I, I should have been doing more this entire time about, you know, building interest in the app. I'm just not the kind of person that can handle two different tasks like that. So I need to spend some time this week making a plan for launching the app. Is this going to be, am I going to try to do some kind of scheduled launch and get as much attention as I can? Or am I going to just put it out there and then see if I can build a user base over time? I don't really know. I don't think I have much chance of getting much press, so it's probably not really worth trying to make a plan that's something that I probably won't succeed at. But it's also, you know, is it possible to put an app in the store and slowly gain users over time without any kind of initial splash? I don't know. Uh, I can't help you with that one. Mm -hmm. Yeah, rhetorical topics. (laughs) 